Tonight, if you take your Bibles and turn with me to two portions of the Scriptures, Matthew 28 and then also 1 Corinthians 11, uh, tonight we're going to be make a return back to our confession of faith, and we're going to be studying over the next few weeks uh, from our confession in chapter number 28, which is also going to lead us into chapters 29 and 30, and we're going to be dealing with chapter 28 that deals with of baptism and the Lord's Supper, of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, but let's first of all look at Matthew chapter 28 and go with me just down to the last two verses of uh, that epistle. Uh, Matthew 28, verse 19. The Bible says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. And then turn over with me to 1 Corinthians 11, which is, of course, another familiar passage. Uh, we'll begin reading in verse 23. Of course, we often turn to this passage when we observe uh, the Lord's Supper on a monthly basis. Uh, notice, again, Paul's words. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Tonight I want to begin dealing with these two very important ordinances, what we refer to as baptism and the Lord's Supper. I also think it's very important, especially as we think about these particular ordinances, these particular passages are teaching us not only about these ordinances, but we're, we're, we're learning about the authority behind them. Um, it's important for a church, no matter what stage of life that church is at, to have a very uh, deep understanding of the purposes of baptism and the purposes of the Lord's Supper. Uh, sometimes in our Christian circles and even in our Reformed churches, we tend to take the approach that everybody knows uh, that that's just what we do. Uh, baptize people after they're saved, and we observe the Lord's Supper. Now, we realize that churches are different with how those things are administered. Uh, there are those who believe that baptism, um, of course, they, they have baptismal services every week. They have people being converted, and they, they have a need for weekly baptisms. Uh, same way with the Lord's Supper. There are churches that observe that ordinance every week. Some do it monthly, some do it quarterly, but there is an observance of these two ordinances. And these ordinances, as we understand them scripturally, are not options. In other words, we're not given a choice as to whether or not we want to adopt uh, the ordinance of baptism and the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. 
Again, we're not told specifically how often these things are to be observed, but we are told that we are to observe them until the Lord comes. Now, you'll notice if you have the confession with you tonight, it's, that's, uh, if you don't, that's okay. Um, I'll just encourage you, especially for the next few weeks, uh, to bring a, a copy with you. There are some in the entryway if you need them. But I do want to read chapter 28. This is very short. There's two paragraphs. Each paragraph deals with um, these ordinances. Paragraph one says, Baptism and the Lord's Supper are, are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, to be continued in his church to the end of the world. Paragraph two, these holy appointments are to be administered by those only who are qualified and thereunto called according to the commission of Christ. Now you'll notice that the only footnotes in this particular chapter uh, deal with Matthew 28, 19 and 20, that's true in paragraph one and paragraph two, and 1 Corinthians 11 in paragraph one and 1 Corinthians four in paragraph two. So what we, when we read this chapter, when we look at chapter 28 of the Confession, uh, really what, should be, what we should first of all do is we should sit up and take notice as to the reality of the importance that the framers of the Confession were placing upon these ordinances. Because if, if you're familiar with your Confession, you will realize that chapter 28, chapter 29, and chapter 30 all deal with these aspects. 28 is a summary of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Chapter 29 is a summary of and an in-depth look, if you will, at baptism. And then 30 is on the Lord's Supper. So we really should take notice of this. These ordinances are not insignificant. Uh, it's an amazing thing when we think about it that the confession deals with the subject of these church ordinances. Now, I'm not sure how familiar you are with uh, the framing of the confession. Um, if you have a copy that is from the entryway, in the very back of that uh, confession, you have a little bit of a history of how the confession came to be. I would encourage you to read that if you've never read it. Um, it, it it'll give you a lot of insight as to uh, what the confession was about, why it came about, and it's going to help us as we study this uh, over uh, the next uh, uh, amount of time. But what we really need to understand is that the, the framers and the writers of the confession, they were mostly representatives of Reformed Baptist congregations. So there are people who will come into our church and they will ask a question. Uh, they'll ask a question, uh, what... What does it mean you're talking about reformed? I don't understand what reformed means. Now, we tend to believe that everybody knows what reformed means, and not everybody does know that. But the reformed Baptists were the primary framers of the confession of faith. Now, those framers were primarily from congregations in England. And so, and this was the 17th century that this was occurring, that these framers came. And the reason that the confession came to be as it, as it came to be is that they were concerned about the declaration of making sure that people were in substantial agreement with those who embraced 
uh, that which was part of what was known as the Protestant Reformation. In other words, they wanted there to be doctrinal unity and they wanted there to be doctrinal purity. They believed it was important enough that if we are going to claim the same doctrine and we're going to claim the same truths, then we need to be in unity with what we actually believe. And that's where we get the confession. Now, primarily during the Protestant Reformation, that primarily dealt with people who were Presbyterians or what we would refer to as Congregationalists. Okay, now when we think about the Reformation and we talk about the Protestant Reformation, we're talking about more than just Baptists. However, there was a concern by the Reformed Baptists to make sure that we want to make sure we preserve the unity and the doctrine of our Baptist faith and our Baptist denomination. Now, they knew that purity and unity could only be achieved on the basis of a common commitment, a commitment to the truth of scriptures. Uh, if we want to be committed to truth, we have to be committed to something. We're committed to scripture. We're committed to the truth of what the scriptures teach. Now, just like uh, many, the framers of the confession did not agree on every single line item. They didn't agree in, in totality of everything that they were uh, talking about, but they knew that we needed to have a consistent agreement upon the most important things that make up the faith. Now, a quick glance will show you of the confession as a whole. You will find out very quickly that not everything that can happen in the Christian life is mentioned. Not every possible thing that may come up is covered in there. But what the confession is teaching us is the things that are of the utmost importance. Now, if it's in the confession, then it's of utmost importance. And that's where we come to baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are not inconsequential beliefs. These are not just things that we can say, whatever goes, goes. The reality is, is that the confession here summarizes, and it summarized the Reformed Baptists of that day, their understanding of what the Bible's teaching on particular subjects. Again, we don't take the confession as being the ultimate end-all authority. The Bible is the end-all authority. But the confession summarizes what we believe the Bible teaches. Now, we will have people who will come into our church who have never, ever, ever once darkened the door of a church that has a confession of faith. Not every Baptist is confessional Baptist. I will also tell you this. Not every Reformed Baptist is confessional Reformed Baptist. A confessional Reformed Baptist is one who holds to the confession of faith as its statement of faith. And, of course, they're in the Reformed tradition. Now, when we talk about the, this confession and we see statements based on these chapters, and as we have been working through the years over the confession, some of you um, were not even here when we started. This has been a journey we started years ago, and we have, we have covered a lot of it, but we still have chapters to cover beginning back in chapter 18, running all the way up to, I believe, chapter 24, and then the chapters after this. But we've been going through the confession from time to time in a line-by-line -line fashion. So when we come to this section on chapter 28, 
baptism and the Lord's Supper are not being mentioned as just, oh, by the way, here's baptism and here's the Lord's Supper. It is actually given a great emphasis. There's three entire chapters that are granted to these two ordinances. Now, remember when we studied chapter 26 of the church, the framers could have easily just put, let's just put a paragraph about baptism and let's just put a paragraph about the Lord's Supper and be done with it. Chapter 28 offers the introduction to it. Chapter 29 offers an in-depth explanation of what baptism is and what baptism isn't, who can be baptized, who cannot be baptized. And the Lord's Supper in chapter 30 tells us exactly what the Lord's Supper is, who can participate in the Lord's Supper, who can't, and why it's important. So when we see that they are given a place of prominence, okay, so instead, we have three entire chapters that are devoted to the ordinances. Now, both of these ordinances, the, Bapti the ordinance of baptism and the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, were both given directly uh, by the Lord himself. And they were told that these were to continue until he comes again. So as we think about these ordinances and we think about these chapters, uh, there is a great reason uh, that there is a great amount of attention being paid to baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, I would say that even as we look at this, we're going to realize that a correct understanding of baptism and a correct understanding of the Lord's Supper will help us have a correct understanding of the gospel itself. If you miss what the, God, what the, what the Lord's Supper really is and you miss what baptism is, you're going to misconstrue and you're going to corrupt what the gospel is. Now, it's of utmost importance that we understand why baptism and why the Lord's Supper are of this much importance. Um, the ordinances here are given so much emphasis. And think about this now. There's emphasis that's being placed on an outward what we're going to call for right now an outward religious ceremony. Okay, now that's, that's a generalized term for where we're going with this. But it's an outward manifestation of something. Okay? Um, when we think about religious ceremony, sometimes we get really kind of standoffish and we say, well, wait a minute. Uh, we're, we're not like Pharisees with this religious uh, um, outward ceremonies. But that's what these are. Now, what they're not is they are not saving ceremonies. Okay, we're going to get into that. Now, there is no salvation in either one of these. There's no salvation that is being given or even being offered in either one of these. However, we do need to see why does the Bible say so much about them and why did the framers of the confession say so much about them? So, what is chapter 28 showing us? Chapter 28 is really showing us an introduction to what these ordinances are. It's a very general terms that are being used. Uh, the contents, if you like to think ahead, uh, the contents of this chapter, just chapter 28, could be summarized under four separate headings. And we're going to deal with the first one tonight, which is the nature of the ordinances. That'll be heading one. Heading two will be the institution of the ordinances. Third will be the duration of the ordinances. And fourth, the administration of the ordinances. 
So let's think about this and deal tonight with the nature of the ordinances. How do we know these are ordinances? Well, you see the first paragraph and the first line says, but baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances. Now let's just stop there. We hear the word ordinance. What does the word ordinance mean? Ordinance just simply means something that is ordered or is commanded by someone in authority, all right? So for even our kids here tonight, we wanna to understand that an ordinance means that that means somebody in authority is telling us this is what we're supposed to do, right? So if we think about mom and dad, mom and dad tell us what to do, there's someone in authority. They have the right to tell us what to do. Now on a bigger scale, our authority is God. Our authority is the Lord himself. So an ordinance has to be ordered or commanded by someone who has the authority to order it, all right? So by using the word ordinance, okay, the confession is showing us, along with what the scriptures teach, that churches are commanded to observe the ordinances that have been given in scripture. Now there's only two ordinances that the Bible actually declares. Ordinances in the pure sense of the word, and that is baptism, and that's the Lord's Supper. Now, that doesn't mean that's the only things we're told to do as far as what our responsibility to God is, but they're the only ordinances. Now, it's going to be very important in just a minute why I'm saying that over and over again. There's only two ordinances. Now, there are some churches who falsely take foot washing, for example, as being an ordinance. There's nowhere in scripture that determines and declares that to be a commanded thing to do as an ordinance. But baptism and the Lord's Supper certainly do meet that uh, qualification. So these are things that we don't have a choice. We can't say we're going to do this or we're not going to do it. Now we thoroughly here, I think, we're all in agreement that we want to be biblical and we want to be in obedience to God. Um, I don't think you would be here in any church if you did not have a desire to be in obedience to God. So we have an obligation scripturally because our authority has told us, observe these ordinances until I come. So baptism and the Lord's Supper fall under those particular things. That means every church must baptize converts. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to have converts who can be baptized every single week. It doesn't mean we may, have con we may not have converts every year. But when we have a convert, when someone comes to faith, when someone is saved and they are converted, we have an obligation to make sure that that individual follows through with the ordinance of baptism. So we will immediately begin speaking with them about their need for baptism. Now, what's been remarkable is people know their scriptures well enough that when we've had people who have been converted, and by the way, over the last few years, you know, we're not going to go in the record books of having thousands of converts, but we've seen a number of people saved in this church and that we've had to baptize. And every one of them to a person has said, I know what I need to do next. I need to be baptized before I ever said anything to them. Now, where did they learn that? They learned that from the scripture. They learned that this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm gonna follow God in obedience. So we have to baptize converts. Uh, 
Now, again, how that baptism and when that baptism takes place is going to be based upon, of course, do you have converts? Now, we also have situations where people, for one reason or another, have been saved for a while, and they didn't get baptized right away. And then they later say, you know what, I need to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. I haven't done this yet. I didn't follow God. And so then they are baptized. But on the second, secondly, we also know that every church must administer the Lord's Supper. Okay, that's not something we can choose to do or not do. Now, during COVID, we had a little bit of a challenge and we were concerned about what was happening and we did have a period of time where we weren't really sure what to do. We weren't sure who was contagious and who would, where it was safe. And I know it's easy for us to look back now and say, look, we, would have, we were totally fine. At the time, we didn't really know if we were totally fine. Nobody knew what was happening. So it, 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 we had a serious time where it, it was, we were not doing it as often as we should have. So we have now come, been coming back to the standpoint of going back to doing it monthly. Our church observes it monthly. It doesn't make us right, doesn't make us wrong. There are some churches do it every week, okay? There are some churches only do it every quarter. There are some who only do it once a year. Now, the Bible doesn't say how often we're supposed to do it. Now, there is some direction in Scripture that actually suggests that those in the, during the Church of Acts were observing the Lord's Supper weekly. So I can understand that's why some believe that we should do it every week. But we're not told how often, but we are to observe the Lord's Supper and we have to administer the Lord's Supper and be willing and able to do that. Now, in each of the chapters that follow chapter 28, okay, the confession's going to explain the significance of these outward acts. Remember, I referred to these as religious ceremonies. It's going to give us the significance of it. Chapter 28 doesn't give us so much the significance of it, but it gives us the, the, the framework of it. What's the nature of it? Like we mentioned, what's the nature? What's the institution? What's the duration? What's the administration? How should these things be done? It's, it's about order. But here's what we do know about baptism. Scripture teaches us that baptism is a picture of the believer's union with Christ. Okay, what are we identifying with Christ in? We're identifying with Christ in his death and his burial and his resurrection. We're identifying with Christ. We are proclaiming to every witness that we have been saved We've repented of our sins, we believe the gospel, and we are declaring that we are now in fellowship or in union with Christ, all right? Again, for our kids, when we think about that, that's after we've trusted Christ and been saved, it's a way to show that we are in fact a child of God. We are in fellowship with God, okay? But it does not save us. It's not even a part of it. It's not, it is not adding to anything to do with our salvation. It is an outward picture of our union with Christ. Now, that union with Christ does come with all the benefits of being in Christ. But when you go down in the water, your sins are not being left in the water and they're not being washed away. Now, again... If we had a misunderstanding of that, and we think, okay, I'm going to get baptized, I've been saved, I've been converted, but
But now I'm going to be baptized, and that's going to fully and finally wash away my sins so that when that pastor takes me under, all my sins get left in that baptistry tank. No. That's not what's happening. It is a picture. Your sins are not being washed away. Your sins were washed away when you repented and believed in Christ, not when you went down in the water. That's water just out of a faucet. There's nothing in that water that's holy or sacred. Now, it is set apart for the purpose of baptism, all right? And we should say, okay, that's being pulled, that's being set aside for a holy purpose. But there's nothing in the water that is any sort of spiritual change that's taking place. And you say, we already know all that. Well, if you knew all that, I'm glad you know that. But not every church believes that. Not every church believes that there's not something going on in that water. All right, so that's important for us to understand. So all the benefits come with that of being in union with Christ. In the Lord's Supper, believers express and they are demonstrating and showing and remembering what Jesus Christ has done for them. Okay? It is, it is a, it's a memorial in a sense. But there is also this idea that it is showing that we are in fact in Christ and we are recognizing that our salvation and our standing before God is based upon what Jesus Christ has done. That's why we remember his body. We remember his body was broken. We remember the blood that was shed. And we're doing those things as a way of remembering what he has done. There is nothing in that wafer that saves you. There is nothing in that cup that saves you. And we'll talk about this later. It does not become the body of Christ and it does not become the blood of Christ. Again, that's important for us to know. Not everybody believes that. Now we'll talk about some more of the details about and when we get to chapter 30 about that, but I think it's important for us to know. Now, what's interesting, and again, I know tonight this is more, this is going to feel more like a classroom setting. I, I fully am aware of uh, where this is tonight, but I hope, it's, I hope it's going to be helpful to us. But when we think about the word ordinance, okay, the 1689 Confession did something that was very different. Uh, the Baptist Confession of Faith is based off of the Westminster Confession of Faith. In other words, the Baptist Confession of Faith was not a brand new document that came into being that the Baptists just all of a sudden came up with. The Westminster Confession of Faith was already, was already being used, and it was primarily being used by Presbyterians and Congregationalists. So what happened is, is that when the uh, Presbyterians actually published this Westminster Confession of Faith, that was a rich, first published in 1646, okay? So that, that Confession of Faith was, was in place, but the, the Reformed Baptists began taking some of the language of what the Westminster Confession of Faith, how it stated it, how it worded it, because they wanted to show that there were things within the Baptist faith that there was a bit of a disagreement as to how it should be worded, okay? Now again, remember I started off by saying there was a desire for unity between Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and Baptists. But the Baptists were concerned about the perception of some of the words. And quite honestly, 
Baptists and Presbyterians are not 100% the same. Okay, now there's kind of this idea that has started to float recently that, hey, Reformed Presbyterians and Reformed Baptists are exactly the same. That's not true at all. Okay, now there's a lot of similar things because they're in the Reformed theology, but there's a difference even in the background. So the Westminster Confession of Faith continued to go and it continued to be, to be published and it's used today by many, many Presbyterian churches. Now, I've also seen the Westminster Confession of Faith used by Baptist churches, okay? But the confession, the Baptist Confession of Faith, it does show a substantial unity with the Reformed Presbyterians and in many cases, we would call Reformed Presbyterians brethren. We're not gonna call them heretics. We're not gonna say, look, these are people that are on their way to hell. But there are some differences, okay? We're gonna talk about some of those differences and to why it matters to Reformed Baptists. The confession, the Westminster Confession, uses the word sacrament rather than ordinance. Now, the Baptist Confession of Faith uses the word ordinance when it refers to baptism and the Lord's Supper. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, it refers to baptism and the Lord's Supper as sacraments. Now, the word sacrament always raises red flags with us that are not of the Catholic persuasion because when we think sacrament, we immediately run down the track and we say, that's a Catholic word, Catholic word, Catholic word. Not really but it's often identified with just being a Catholic word. It's not, but that's the way it gets recognized. But the Baptists were so afraid of this. We do not in any way, shape, or form want to show doctrinal unity with the Catholic Church. And they decided that we are going to take a different route. We're not going to use the word sacrament because they were afraid that the sacrament would be identify them, connect them too closely. We're gonna get into why that matters to the Catholic Church. Now, that word sacrament is not a heretical word, okay? This is not, this is not like saying baptism saves you. It's not, it's not heresy, and it's not even a wrong theological word. The way the Catholics use it is wrong, okay? That's where the difference is. But the word sacrament is not the bad word. It's how it's used. But the Baptist Confession of Faith changed it from what the Westminster said and said, instead of using sacrament, we're gonna use the word ordinance. Now, we're not told exactly. There was, there's no notes that I'm aware of that say this is why the Baptist rejected the word sacrament and substituted the word. There's no definitive document that I'm aware of. Somebody much smarter than me probably does know that but it merely refers, the word sacrament in its purest form, the definition of it just means something that, something that is sacred and is set apart from the ordinary to, for the purposes of divine service. So it just means to take something ordinary and set it apart for divine service. It's, it's the same illustration I gave you with water. When we baptize Sunday, I'm gonna fill that baptistry up there with straight water. I'm not gonna do anything to it. I'm just gonna put water in it. But that water is being set apart for a divine service. The baptism of a person who has repented of their sins 
and believed and trusted on Christ alone. That water is set apart. Sacrament set apart. Doesn't mean that it's holy water. Just means I'm taking something ordinary. Water is very ordinary, but it's being used for a divine purpose. Same thing when we observe the Lord's Supper. We take a small wafer of bread and we take a small cup of juice, something that's ordinary, and we're using it for divine service. That's all sacrament means. Now the problem is, is when you connect the sacrament to the Catholic Church, now you get a whole new definition. Because the Catholic Church believes that there's something in that wafer. That, sa- that wafer actually changes form. That juice or wine actually changes. It becomes something else. And that there is such a thing as holy water. So there's a difference. The Baptist, that's what most believe, is that the Baptist just simply did not want to even uh, cause any confusion at all and say, we're going we're to use a different word. So it was not so much the technical definition of the word, but rather how it was being used historically. None of us were alive in 1689. Isn't that profound? We're not aware of what was really happening in 1689 and in 1644. All we see is what we read about. But it was important enough to the framers of the confession that they said, wait a minute, we're going to have to change this. Now, we read Matthew 28. We read 1 Corinthians 11. Those were long before the Westminster Confession of Faith was ever thought about, long before the Baptist Confession of Faith was ever thought about. So where did the authority come from to carry out baptisms and to carry out the Lord's Supper? The Lord Jesus Christ himself said, this is what the churches are supposed to be doing. It wasn't something novel and new. It wasn't like, oh, you know what we're not doing in our churches? We're not baptizing people. Well, wait a minute. We're not observing the Lord's Supper. No, they've been doing that. The Lord commanded it. But again, it was the historical usage and what was going on at the time. So the framers, again, I believe most likely wanted to avoid even the possible suggestion that there's any saving grace in the baptistry, baptistry waters or in the Lord's Supper. Roman Catholics have historically used the word sacrament to describe baptism and their mass, along with many other of their Catholic observances. Now this is, I'm not, I am not being derogatory and mean and unkind and uncaring towards the Catholic Church. They believe that there is saving grace communicated by baptismal waters, by the wafer, and by the blood. I'm not slandering the Catholic Church. That's what they believe. If you go and talk to a priest, they'll tell you that, and they will say it without any apology at all. Right? There's a big difference in stating a fact and provoking someone, right? We're not provoking. We're just, that's just what they believe. Now, we wholeheartedly disagree with that. And that's why... The confession of faith is very clear. And when we get into chapter 29, chapter 30, you'll see just how clear it is 
and how it was intended to push away from any church, any denomination that would suggest that there was any saving grace in those two sacraments or those two ordinances. Now, what's most interesting, and most people are, are, are afraid to admit this, some, some Roman Catholics may actually not agree with what I'm getting ready to say, but I think if you, lis- if you listen and read about what they're actually teaching, Roman Catholics actually believe that it's the activity and the intention of the priest that's most important rather than the spiritual state of the participant. In other words, the emphasis is not on the person who is being baptized and the person who's taking the Lord's Supper, but rather it's on what the priest is giving. Okay? It's about what the priest is communicating to the participant. I, when we observe the Lord's Supper, I am not communicating in myself from me anything to you. Okay, when I baptize on Sunday, I'm not communicating anything to that person. It's not about the priest, it's about the participant. The priests actually believe that they have the power to impart we, we kind of joke, but we maybe shouldn't. When a person walks into that confessional booth, there's a real belief that that priest has the ability to absolve sin and that the person, the priest actually believes they have the authority to do that. And that's why when the person walks into that confession booth and they say, Father, I have sinned, and the priest will immediately ask, How long has it been since your last confession? And he'll run down his list of sins. And then the the person who is repenting will say, what can I do to absolve this? That's just straight fact. That's not slander. The problem is that priest does not have the authority or the ability to remove sin at all. or to give what penance, again, if you know what that word means, I'm not going to define that so much, but if you know what that means, they don't have the ability to say, okay, go and do this. And one of the strange things is, is if somebody really has sinned, one of the things they'll ask is, how many Hail Marys can I do? Okay, there's, so there's something's happening that they believe that that priest is imparting something, not just in that, but in the, in the administration of baptism and in the administration of what the Lord's Supper is. So again, we'll get into more detail. I probably went further than I wanted to with that. But <clears throat> So secondly, let's just quickly cover this. I know we're, we're getting short on time. <clears throat> but the importance of this chapter, chapter 28, is really we see the importance of it. And again, the biggest threat to the churches, especially in England at that time, was the Catholic Church. And so a lot of what's happening with the baptism chapters and the, and the Lord's Supper chapters has to be looked at based upon the backdrop of what the sacraments of the Catholic Church are. Now, scripturally, there's only two ordinances, and we'll call them sacraments. There's only two. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. The Catholic Church has seven. There are seven sacraments. 
Biblically, there's only two. So their sacrament of baptism, their first one, actually they believe that it removes the guilt and the effects of original sin. Okay, that's in their books. Not slander, just truth. Sacrament of baptism means it removes guilt and the effects of original sin. That's one of the reasons why they baptize infants. Now, just stating a fact, so do Presbyterians for the most part. They believe in infant baptism. Now, it's for a different reason, but they believe in infant baptism, and we would disagree with that because of various reasons. We'll talk about that when we get to it. But the Catholics believe sacrament of baptism removes the guilt and effects of original sin and incorporates the baptized person into the church. Now we say, oh, into the church. But they define it as the mystical body of Christ on earth. Okay, so again, we're not, this isn't a Catholic study. I just want you to see it from the standpoint they have a sacrament of baptism. You've probably heard of some of these. The second one is the sacrament of confirmation. When children are very little, they talk about being confirmed. I had a friend across the street that I grew up with I still remember it. He was going to be confirmed. And I'm like, what does that mean to be confirmed? Even as a little guy, I was like, that, I've never heard of that. Well, confirmation is administered immediately after the sacrament of baptism. Confirmation is said to perfect our baptism and brings us the graces of the Holy Spirit, get this, that were granted to the apostles on Pentecost Sunday. In other words, it's doing something. Okay, it's communicating something to us. It's perfecting our baptism, according to the Catholic Church. Their third sacrament is the sacrament of Holy Communion. Uh, this is just simply defined as a sacrament that is the source of great graces that sanctify us and help us grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's the way they define it. The sacrament of Confession. Again, when they go into that booth, that's not just, that is not just a, hey, I'm just got to get this off my chest. They believe something's really happening and that the priest is doing something. And it's defined as something that reconciles us to God and it's a great source of grace. That's the way it's defined. Now, they're sacri they, they call marriage a sacrament. Now, their definition of what marriage is supposed to be is, an ex is not wrong. They just simply define it as the sacrament of marriage reflects the union of Jesus Christ and his church. We're not going to disagree with that. That's what every marriage is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a picture of Christ's love for the church. So it's not so much that that is wrong in its, um, what its intent is. But what about the sixth one, which is the sacrament of holy orders? The sacrament of holy orders is a continuation of Christ's priesthood, which he bestowed upon his apostles. Now, this is where, this is where you'll start to see why they put such an emphasis on the saints, St. Peter, okay? Because there's three levels of the sacrament of holy orders. The episcopate, the priesthood, and the deaconate. So 
that is a continuation, a continuation of the apostles' priesthood. Goes all the way back to they believe that Peter is the head of the church. Filters all the way down. And then the last one is the sacrament of the anointing of the sick. We traditionally know this as last rites or what's sometimes defined as extreme unction. The sacrament of the anointing of the sick is administered both to the dying and to those who are gravely ill or about to undergo a serious operation for the recovery of their health and for their spiritual strength. We hear that often. Would you like the priest to come in and administer the last rites? Okay, that they call that's a sacrament. That's the way they consider that. So instead of two, the Roman Catholic Church has declared as sacraments five more things that, the, that we do not believe. The sacraments, according to the Roman Catholic theology, in themselves administer grace. Now, on the other hand, Reformed theology says that the sacraments and the ordinances do not in themselves administer grace, but in order, but they must be joined with faith. In other words, I'm not a candidate for baptism unless I've been saved, unless it's confirmed by my faith. According to the Roman Catholic system, instead of being the external manifestation of preceding union with Christ, they are the physical means of constituting and maintaining this union. In other words, these are the means in which saving grace is imparted. Okay? So, thirdly, we call them, whether we call them sacraments or ordinances, it's important that we understand that baptism and the Lord's Supper do not save anyone. They are pictures of of the redemption that has come to the believer through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's based on an appropriate response of repentance, which must be made by the believer, but the ordinances themselves do not and cannot save. Okay, no, no, no person who has been baptized here was saved by that baptism. And nobody who's ever taken the Lord's Supper here has been saved by partaking in that. We cannot overemphasize or we cannot state this strongly enough. Believe it or not, we have to actually guard against this on a regular basis. I've told you, and again, I'm not picking on anybody and I'm not calling anybody out, but I'm telling you, we've had that these ideas start to trickle in the front door that have had to be dealt with. That there is salvation in baptism. Okay, these, these, this is coming in a Baptist church now, folks. That's what I'm telling you. We can't just assume everybody's on the same page. That's why we make such a big deal about doctrine around here because it happens quicker than you can even, than you can even catch it. And before you know it, you have people that are saying, hey, to our church members, we believe this. And over the last year, the two greatest sources of what I think could have been a big problem was in these two areas of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So we have to guard against it. I mean, we think it's going to be some grand heresy that's going to come in the door that's going to pull the chandeliers down, right? 
It's subtle things. Who knows? We could have had people who, who have been and simply could have said, yeah, we, we believe baptism saves. But we have to guard against it. Again, there is a tendency to equate salvation with something we do outwardly. It has always been the problem of man that my salvation depends on me doing something outwardly. And that's why man struggles with this, and that's why so many denominations get baptism and the Lord's Supper wrong. Somebody said this, I wish I could take credit for this, and I can't. But they said there is something of a desire in every sinful heart to be on good terms with God without actually obeying God. Man, man actually wants to be on good terms with God, but he doesn't want to actually live in obedience to God. So he's always looking for something that will save him. What can I do outwardly that will just take care of that so I don't have to obey God any further? Well, obey an ordinance and get saved and be good. And I have to worry about it. The point is, is that most people, if you ask them, they want to be saved from the penalty of sin. They want to be saved from hell. But they do not want to be saved from the penalty of sin in hell if it means they can't continue to live in sin. Right? There's a lot of people that don't want to go to hell, but they sure don't want to give up their sin. So it's, it, it's, the, it's, the, it's the depravity of man on full display. That's why the confession booth for the Catholic, is so important because all I got to do is go in there and even if it's been 10 years, I'll just go in there and say, Father, forgive me, it's been 10 years since I have made a confession. And he says, okay, what can I do to make myself right with God again so I can go right back out of this confession booth and live like I want again? If I can find saving grace in a booth with a door on it and a screen and I can say, now I can go do whatever I want, isn't that to, to the depraved man, isn't that the way it's most convenient? Or I get baptized, I'm saved. I can, do how, I can live however I want. Take the Lord's Supper every once in a while. I can, it continues to give me grace. But we continue, right? People come and they say they want, they want the church to make the arrangements with God. You know, it's, again, I'm not, I'm not being disrespectful or smart about this, but I've had people over the years that truly believe that because I'm a pastor, I have access with God that they don't have. That I have a special line with God. I don't. I have, I have no more access to God than you do. You have the same exact access I do. And they say, well, no, you're, and, you know, and it's interesting because don't, people don't even understand because they'll say something like this, you're a man of the cloth. And I'll say, no, I'm not a man of the cloth in the sense that you're thinking about. Right, and I've told you, I've had people over the years, I had one sweet man who didn't know the difference and he, every time he came into our little Baptist church on the hill in New Hampshire, he'd call me father because that's all he knew. And I'd have to say, I'm no, 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 I'm not father. I'm not even reverend. Don't even call me reverend. But there's an idea here that what can I do to make myself right with God? What can I do that makes myself right with God but allows me to continue to live however I want to live? So most often, it is in these two areas, okay? 
These two areas of baptism and the Lord's Supper, whether we know it or not, are the most often looked upon avenues in which I can find saving grace without having to change my life. I can do whatever I want to do and live however I want. Now, whether or not this is a thing or not, I don't know if the Catholics really do this on purpose. But there have been many over the years who have said that even when you go into a Roman Catholic cathedral and you look at the positioning of where things are, how things are lined up, the most important things are usually where the preeminence is, is often put in the center of the platform. Well, what's usually in the center of the platform will be the Lord's table or it'll be, it'll be the baptistry to baptize the children and the pulpit will be off to the side somewhere. Now, again, I'm not trying to be mystical and weird about this. I'm just telling you this is the way it is. There's things that are more important in their, in their idea, right? Now, how our church is, out, is laid out, there's, there's nothing that says we have to have a pulpit right here and it has to be lined up the way it is. But the, do you know that the idea of why the pulpits were put where they are in churches today was because what was coming down from the pulpit was to be the primary thing? It wasn't supposed to be about the baptistry and it's not supposed to be about the other things. It was supposed to be the truth that's being proclaimed from that pulpit. And that's why it takes center. Now we would all be really weirded out if we were in a church in England, even today, because Reformed Baptist churches in England, guess where their pulpit is? It's way up there. It's, it's, at the, it's like up a staircase. And they stand up there. Now, a lot of people look at that and say, well, man, that, that, guy, thinks he's, that guy thinks he's something. He's, he, he's got to be elevated. Now, we want to be like the modern American church where he's down and he's with us. The whole idea is just simply to show the preeminence of what's coming out of that book. That it's, a, it's about the word. It's about Christ having the preeminence. That's all it really is. Um, and so whether or not that's something that the Catholics actually thought about, um, again, we see a Lord's table. You know that there's some form of a baptistry back there. It's not that we hide them. But again, it's not the means of where saving grace is going to come from. So we do have to make it very clear, and that's what we're going to be dealing with over the next few weeks. So we have to make it very clear why the church has to very clearly define what it is, who can participate in baptism, who can participate in the Lord's Supper. But here's the truth, that neither one of those ordinances can be participated by anybody who has not truly repented of their sins. So you're not a candidate for baptism unless you've repented of your sins and you've trusted in Christ alone. You, sh- you are not, you, you should not, and you really are, you are in, uh, uh, I, think it's a, I think it's a dangerous territory when you take the Lord's Supper and you have not repented of your sins. You're not supposed to take that because it's reserved for people who have repented of their sins and have placed their faith and trust in Christ. Now, again, the Protestant reformers, this means not just Reformed Baptists. This would also, um, again, they would have a different view on it, but even the Reformed Presbyterians made it a rule that the ordinances were never to be separated from the word. Okay, so in other words, if a baptism takes place or the Lord's Supper takes place, it should be based upon how that observance is explained in the scriptures. 
It's the absolute necessity that for either one of these ordinances, repentance must be there. There must be repentance and there must be a conversion to even consider being baptized. Now, again, I've, I've gone way longer than I wanted to, but I've, I've had people ask me many, many times about redoing things, being rebaptized, being re-this and re-that. And it's often, it's often again, a, a struggle with that that baptism did something. Okay, it, it didn't do anything. It was an act and a step of obedience to show forth your fellowship with Christ. Now again, there are circumstances in the, in the years, and I haven't even been that long in ministry compared to many, but I've had a lot of questions over the years, and baptism tends to be the one that people ask a lot of questions about. And so it's important that we as a church um, take a very strong, um, but um, also very clear on what we believe about it. So again, I appreciate your patience. I, I meant for this to really for us to end right at eight tonight, but um, I, hope, I hope this is a help to you and I hope it'll be an encouragement um, as we continue to work through this. Um, so next week we'll deal with uh, the institution of these and get into a little bit more detail about what that looks like and why. And uh, so we'll, we'll study that again next week. Um, let's finish by uh, singing the hymn on 133.